This morning we're reading in 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, um, on page 1015 of your Bibles that are in the pew. Or you can watch the screens, whichever you prefer. <clears throat> Please stand. Thank you. <laughs> 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, suffering for righteousness' sake. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may ob obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is God's word. Please keep your Bibles open to the book of 1 Peter as we pray together this morning. God, we know that sometimes uh, your word is hard for us to hear uh, because it calls us to more than we <clears throat> feel that we have to give. And we pray that as we encounter a text like that this morning, that you would give us strength and courage and that by your Spirit, we would rise to this holy calling, and that we would be the people that you have called us to be. God, we are your people, and it's by your grace that we can say that, and that we come before you this morning in prayer. Amen. Well, so far in the book of 1 Peter, we've seen again and again and again how this book is consistently and constantly looking forward. Throughout the book, at several points, we've seen how Peter has encouraged Christians in the first century and beyond that enduring their struggles is possible with our eyes set on what lies ahead. In chapter 1, he reminded them and us that Christ is keeping for us an eternal inheritance, ready to, re to be revealed at the last time, even if now we endure hardship. And for first century believers and for us, the hope of what we look forward to is the anchor that we hold on to in the midst of trial. And so he has encouraged them and us to strive for honorable conduct in our lives, trusting in what he will do through our lives. It is a book that is full of the hopeful anticipation that God is doing something amazing, something beautiful, and the hope that we have in that promise and God's faithfulness is the fuel for our ongoing perseverance. But if we're honest, it's a hard letter for us to read, because we would rather that it said something along the lines of, God is going to get you out of this jam. We would rather that that was the simple promise of this book. God will get you out of this. You don't have to go through it anymore. The pain that you're feeling now, God is going to whisk you away from it. As long as you do what he wants you to do, he'll make sure that you live your life on easy street. We would rather that's what the book of 1 Peter said, because that would give us control of the situation over the things that oppress us, and it would ultimately give us control over God, which 
we wish for, if we're honest. But that's not what the book of 1 Peter says. Instead, we've seen again and again that God does not simply whisk his people away from trial, but instead sees them through it by redeeming them and reminding them of what he's already done and what he will do and what lies ahead. The book of 1 Peter is an encouragement to face the challenge of life in a broken world, to rise up with confidence in Christ, knowing that even if we lose everything in this life, we have gained more in Christ. But the stakes are getting higher the further and further that we get into this book, beginning here in this morning's passage. I'm sure that at some point in your life you have faced what seemed to be an insurmountable obstacle. Maybe as a parent, something in your career, or in some other circumstance, you've encountered an obstacle that felt impossible to overcome. We look at the situation in front of us, at our resources and our abilities, and we say, well, <laughs> there's, no obvious, there's, there's obviously no way that this situation is going to result in a success. We have an example of this that occurs every year right here in Boston as people try to qualify for the Boston Marathon. I don't know if you know how hard it is to do that. It's ridiculously hard, but all you have to do is run a six-minute, 50-second mile and then do that 25 more times. You basically have to sprint an entire marathon just to qualify to have your name in the running to get into the race. Most of us can't even fathom that. For me, qualifying for the Boston Marathon is an absolute impossibility. If I was allowed to do it on a bike, I probably still couldn't do it that fast. And that feeling of impossibility of standing right in front of something that is absolutely unconquerable, impossible to accomplish, is exactly how I feel when I consider what I think is the most difficult command in the entire Bible. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus overturned many expectations that people have about how things ought to go in this life. He told the crowd that was there listening to him that day that it's not the rich who are blessed, but the poor and the hungry, and those who weep, and those who are hated on account of him. It's the opposite of what we assume, because we associate blessing with riches, with abundance, with laughter, and with acceptance. And Jesus is flipping those assumptions upside down. And as he does so, he builds toward what is the most difficult command that he gives his people. When he said, but I say to you who hear, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. It is the ultimate reversal of human understanding. And even if we like the idea behind these words, love your enemies, it's a whole lot easier to like the idea than it is to actually do it. It's difficult for us because... It's not merely a command for us to tolerate or coexist or to deny a, a desire for retribution, but a command to actually love those who seek to do us harm, to seek their good, and to willingly sacrifice to get there. It contradicts everything that our human hearts tell us we should long for, our instinctual pursuit 
of self-preservation and self-defense. Setting them aside instead and seeking the good and flourishing of those who carry out injustices against us. And if we sit and ponder what it would actually cost us to truly love our enemies, we begin to wrestle, I think, with some challenging questions. We ask first, what would it look like to love our enemies? What would it mean for me to actually love them anyway? And secondly, can we possibly do this? Knowing what it would cost, how can anyone truly love those who have caused them pain and loss and stress and suffering? The passage that we're digging into this morning from 1 Peter, I think, helps us to take Jesus seriously when he tells us to love our enemies, and it helps us understand how it is even possible to do so. Peter opens this section of the book of 1 Peter with the word finally, which I think is hilarious um, because it sounds like he's about to land the plane, but if you're counting verses, uh, you know that we're only just past the halfway mark of this book. So Peter could have been a pastor in the 21st century too. I think he would fit right in because we all know that anytime the pastor says, and in conclusion, um, he's actually nowhere near the finish line. But Peter isn't actually signaling the end of the letter, but just the end of this sort of section of the letter in which he's dealt with honorable conduct, the conduct that God expects of his people. It's a summary and a reminder and an encouragement to hear and obey these hard words of Scripture. And it's necessary for us and for Christians at all points in church history because they are so contrary to our instincts. The previous sections have dealt with citizens who are subject to the authority of their governments, to servants, to wives and husbands, but this section is explicitly for all of you, according to verse 8, so there's no wiggling out of it. It's the linking idea behind all of the examples outlined in the previous paragraphs, and they are driven, all of them, by one idea, one theme which is spelled out in this description of honorable conduct from chapter 3, verse 8. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tenderheartedness, and humility. Grammatically speaking, these are not commands. They're actually adjectives in Greek. They're descriptions of the person who is imitating Christ. In fact, there are no grammatical instructions, no grammatical commands in verses 8 and 9 anywhere, because even though we should strive for these qualities, they are things that God brings about in us. And they reflect Christ's own character to the world around us. Within the Trinity, Jesus understood in the truest sense what unity looks like. And he prayed that his people would be unified as he is unified with his Father. And even though his rightful place is on a throne in glory, Jesus demonstrated sympathy and humility for us in coming here, in taking on the form of a servant and being tempted as we are. And Jesus often demonstrated tenderness of heart, but that doesn't mean that he was a, a softy or a pushover, because even when Jesus went into the temple court to cleanse it by overturning tables and chasing out money changers, it was because of his tender-hearted concern for the poor and the road-weary travelers who had come long distances to Jerusalem to worship at the temple and who were being gouged for their desire to worship God. The qualities, these qualities outlined in 1 Peter 
are things that Peter himself got to see in Jesus every day as he followed him as one of his disciples. And it's not an exhaustive list of the things that Peter got to see in Jesus, but it does reveal a common theme, which I think is worth paying attention to. These are qualities that are lived out in the context of relationships. Unity, sympathy, brotherly love, tenderheartedness, and humility are things that ought to define our relationships. And to me, that doesn't sound so bad, because I think that most of those things, perhaps all of those things, are things that we want already. Our culture already values those qualities. Even those who don't see Jesus as a Savior admire those aspects of his character. They respect him as someone who selflessly loved and served others, who was humble and loving toward others. And even if it's hard for us to hit that mark in our relationships all the time, it's certainly not something that we are overwhelmed to read in Scripture because we like being encouraged to do what we already would have done anyway. I remember hearing sometime last year that a study had been uh, published that said that coffee is actually good for you. I think that just goes back and forth. Sometimes it's good for you, sometimes it's bad for you. But when studies are released that say coffee is good for you, I'm like, yes, please. Publish more of those studies because I love coffee, and the more that you tell me it's good for me, the happier I'll be, right? Because we like being encouraged to do the things that we were already going to do anyway. We like it when the Bible tells us to pursue what we would have valued and pursued anyway, what our culture already tells us is good. But that's about to change. Our, our feeling of elation, reading through verse 8, is about to come crashing down, and you can practically hear like the record scratch when you get to the first words of verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And those are words I think that we have a harder time with because we want to see justice done. And often, we would like to be the ones who get to carry it out. And while I don't think that this passage, or any other for that matter, is instructing us to neglect the search for justice, I think it is instructing us to reshape and rethink how we pursue it. When we're injured by someone, our instinct is to inflict some injury in return. And the greater the pain that we have felt, the greater our desire to seek that retribution. It's easier for me to forgive someone and to move on when someone takes my parking place than it is if they run over my foot. <laughs> One of those things is going to take me longer to get over, longer to forgive, and it will be easier for me to move on from one of them. The greater the pain that we feel, the harder it is to conquer the desire for retribution and to repay the pain that we have felt. And Peter is writing to a group of people, a number of churches, who have begun to feel and will feel a lot of pain. At various points in this letter, we've seen that Peter knows that things are going to get worse before they get better. And the road ahead for him and for all the people that he's writing to will be filled with hardship and abuse and suffering. So when Peter uses the word evil in verse 9, it's sort of an umbrella term that includes all the pain that comes with living in a broken world that has rebelled against its creator and our Savior. It's an idea that Peter has already touched on in this letter, particularly back in chapter 2 when Believers were instructed to be subject 
to human institutions. And as we saw when we looked at that passage, it wasn't a command to always obey those authorities, but a command to endure the mistreatment that Christians will receive for obeying Christ. Just as Peter himself would go on to be martyred for preaching the gospel, many first century Christians faced the same fate, condemned unjustly by earthly authority for the sake of obeying heavenly authority. And in the face of that abuse, how ought they, how, how should they have responded? Our longing for justice wants to see them rise up and overthrow their oppressors and install a governmental system that would have treated them more fairly and more kindly. That's what we want to see happen. We want to see them treated fairly. But in their willing submission and in their refusal to repay evil with evil, they imitated Christ, who himself was condemned for his obedience to heavenly authority. But the bar is actually even higher than that. Because it's not surprising, perhaps it's not surprising to you to read somewhere in the Bible the words, don't do evil. <laughs> that seems like page one of the Bible, don't do evil. We, we shouldn't be surprised to see that here in the book of First Peter. That seems like a pretty essential, basic concept. But verse nine goes even further than that when it says, don't repay reviling for reviling. Even our words are to be kept in check. And that's even harder to do. Because even if I'm able to conquer the urge to hurt the person who has hurt me, I think we have a harder time conquering the urge to use hurtful words that often jump out of our mouths before we've even taken the time to think them through. There's a reason that the Bible calls our tongues a world of evil because they are destructive and they are hard to tame. And we know the hurtful power of people's words and their destructive force. We have felt it, every one of us. And our instinct is to respond in the same way, to injure like we've been injured. For the Israelites living under the law, there was an answer to this question. The Old Testament law stipulated limitations on the retributions that could be carried out in various situations. When blood was shed or property destroyed, God's law provided an answer. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. It was a unique concept in the ancient Near East for a couple of reasons. First, because it limited the scope of retribution. If you hurt me, I'm not allowed to destroy you in response. It limits the scope of retribution. And secondly, it was unique among the other cultures of the ancient Near East because it didn't allow the rich in society to pay their way out of punishment. Everyone in society was under the same law. The Israelites were held to a higher standard than all of their neighbors. And that idea, the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, speaks to our search for justice. It acknowledges that damage has been done, and it seeks a fitting and fair retribution. And that's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Because in coming to live and die in a world that he created, 
Jesus changed how we search for and where we find justice. And having found it in Christ himself, our response to evil and to reviling changes. Do not repay evil for evil, verse 9 says, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. It's not only a call to conquer the urge to hurt those who hurt us, but to seek their good, to bless them. Peter in this passage is actually echoing the words of Jesus himself. He spent three years with Jesus, hearing him teach and seeing him love people every day and witnessing his miracles. And now, decades later, as he writes this, this letter, he is so full of those experiences, so full of Jesus, that it shapes his teaching and directs his words, whether or not he even knows that's what's happening. Verse 9 is an echo of the Sermon on the Mount, even if it's not a direct quote. Because Peter was there that day. He was a newly minted disciple hearing Jesus, people, hearing Jesus teach these people. And clearly the words that he heard that day sank in. It's one thing for us to memorize Scripture, to, to internalize it in that way, so that we can repeat it at a moment's notice, as we've seen Peter do, as we've seen him demonstrate at various points in the book of 1 Peter, quoting from other parts of the Bible. But the goal of that process of memorizing and internalizing Scripture is more than winning at Bible trivia or impressing friends from church. The goal, the objective, is being so full of God's Word that it shapes the way that we speak and the words that we speak and the things that we do. Peter is not quoting directly from the Sermon on the Mount here, but he is drawing on it affected by what he heard that day when he heard Jesus say, but I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. And we like that idea, I think, or the sound of that idea, until we're the ones being hated or cursed and abused. It's maybe the most difficult thing anyone has ever been told to do. And now, at the point that Peter is writing this letter, the church has grown, spread throughout the Roman Empire and the ancient Near East, and the first, fruit, first fruits of persecution have come. And Peter is reminding the church of Christ's words, knowing that it's going to get worse. And hearing it, as they did in the context of this looming threat and intensifying trial, this was no longer a theoretical concept, but their real lives. As friends and neighbors and family members were arrested and harassed and socially ostracized or even killed, the instruction to respond with blessing was a sudden and demanding complication, just as it is for any of us when we are hurt and everything in us wants to hurt the person who hurt us to get some payback. Suddenly, the words of Christ echoed here in 1 Peter to love those who hurt us, to bless them and pray for them and seek their good is more than theoretical. It instantly becomes what feels like an impossibly difficult task. As I was working on this sermon this week, 
thinking about the notion of blessing those who hate us, I was reminded of King David. The readers of 1 Peter in the first century knew his story, and they may have thought of him when they read this letter. Because when David was a kid, he was anointed the king of Israel, though he wouldn't actually wear a crown for quite some time. God had simply sent his servant Samuel to identify David as the next king, a king that God himself had called to rule his people. But while he was waiting for the throne, David's predecessor, Saul, was still in charge. And Saul was threatened by David. From the very beginning, when David goes, out, goes into battle against Goliath, and emerges victorious, the people are thrilled, excited about David, and they chant as he emerges from that battle, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. David was more popular than Saul with the people of Israel, and Saul didn't like that. And on top of that, God had already told Saul that he would have the kingdom ripped away from him and given to another for failing to lead as God had called him to lead. And with that promise looming over him and the awareness that he would have his kingdom ripped away from him, Saul slowly went crazy. And as the, year, as the years passed, he became more and more paranoid about David, and he tried to have him killed on multiple occasions. So David had to go on the run, fleeing for his life from a mad king who was trying to murder him. And twice, while David was living on the run, he had chances to kill Saul. Two times, he had the drop on Saul, and he could have put an end to his misery. Just like that. He could have said, God promised me the throne, and this guy is insane, and he's treating me unfairly, so I am justified in taking matters into my own hands. His friends urged him to do it, he would not have been looked down on among his friends or in society as a murderer, but two times he refused. Twice he held Saul's life in his hands, and twice he let him go. David's friends were confused by that decision. But David's refusal to take matters into his own hands was a testimony to his trust in God's faithfulness. When he confronted Saul with proof that he had spared the king's life, he says that even though others urged me to kill you, may the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. David understood that God is sovereign, and he trusted that God is faithful, and he believed that if God willed for him to be the next king, there was nothing, no power in heaven or on earth, or certainly in Saul's hands, that could disrupt that plan. So rather than repaying Saul's evil with more evil, taking matters into his, his own hands and freeing himself of the burden of Saul's threats, David resolved instead to trust in God's faithfulness. Peter knew, as he wrote this letter, what was at stake. He knew that people's lives were on the line, just as David's was. And with pressure that high, it's easy to justify all kinds of things. But he points to David in this passage and says, by pointing to David, God is faithful to you just as he was to David. He does this by quoting from Psalm 34. 
which is the second half of our passage, a psalm that David himself wrote. It's a psalm about praising God because he is the deliverer who is near to the brokenhearted, who saves them from their troubles, and who answers the injustices that they suffer. And interestingly, it was written by David during the years that he was running for his life from Saul. While his life was being threatened, and while he faced this question about how he would respond to the evil that Saul was bringing into his life, he wrote Psalm 34. Alone and pursued, he wrote these words. And Peter, knowing that that is exactly how many of his readers feel at the time that they read 1 Peter in the first century, looks to Psalm 34 to encourage them to carry out their calling, the calling that God has given them. And he says, quoting from Psalm 34, "...whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his, li his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it." It is God's calling for all of his people to turn away from evil and to do good instead, to seek peace in the middle of the trial. And even though that was surely hard for David to do when Saul was trying to murder him, God called him to do it so that he could be blessed. God has outlined honorable conduct in 1 Peter because of his desire to bless his people. He calls us, you and I, and all of his people to answer evil and reviling for the sake of knowing Christ and as we live in a broken world, the abuse and the unjust treatment that we receive in this world, he calls us to answer it with honorable conduct because of his desire to bless each of us. Now, some people read these words of 1 Peter and stumble over them. And they say, well, doesn't it sound like we're earning God's blessing or we're earning his favor? Doesn't that sound like what Peter is saying here? I mean, verse 9 does say, bless others that you may obtain a blessing. And Psalm 34 does say, if you want a good and happy life, turn away from evil. And that's the way that many people think about a relationship with God. As long as I'm a good person, then God will bless me and make my life better. But I think that there are a couple of clues here in 1 Peter that demonstrate that that is not what Peter is saying. First, he says at the end of verse 9 that we obtain a blessing from God, and that word obtain is significant. It occurs only one other time in the book of 1 Peter, in chapter 1, when Christians are promised God's eternal blessing. And there, Peter is describing the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and given to us in Christ. And the word for inherit in that verse is the same word translated obtain here in chapter 3, in which we read about this blessing that we inherit. And an inheritance is not earned. An inheritance is given. That much is certainly clear in chapter 1 when Peter states very clearly that we receive this blessing, this inheritance, according to God's great mercy. And he has called us to follow Christ through suffering and trial in order to bless us by his great mercy. All we bring to him is our need for his mercy. So we don't earn his favor, we don't earn his blessing, we receive it by grace as a gift and live our lives as people who have been 
shown grace and given this gift of forgiveness. And over time, as the Spirit is at work in us, we become people who, like Christ, answer evil and reviling with a simple prayer, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. We become people who keep our tongues from evil, who turn away from doing evil to do good instead, who seek peace and pursue it. We become people who reflect the Christ-like qualities of unity, sympathy, brotherly love, and humility. We become the people that God has called us to be, receiving the blessing of His calling and His faithfulness to make it so. So the eyes of the Lord, David proclaims, are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. Those who have seen Christ and recognized their need for forgiveness, the forgiveness that He offers, and begun to resemble their Savior. God is not commanding his people to earn his love or his blessing. He's reminding us that he's already, by his great mercy, made his love known to us in Christ. And the blessing of knowing that love more is one we receive by following Christ through suffering with honorable conduct. The calling of Christ to his people is to love as he loved to receive evil and contempt, and to answer with blessing. And the most difficult command in the whole Bible would be impossible for us were it not for Jesus Christ himself. We hear these words to love our enemies, to bless those who hurt us, and we ask how and whether or not it's even possible in the midst of our pain to turn our hearts that way, toward loving the people who hurt us, We think about the people in our lives who have inflicted the most damage, whose recklessness have caused us the most pain, and it's all we can do to not hate those people, let alone actually love them. And it would be impossible for us if Christ had not proven otherwise when he loved us while we were his enemies. When my sin and yours was condemning him to the cross to suffer the wrath of his Father in your place and mine, He loved us then, knowing the ways that we would fail, that we would turn away from him and disgrace his holiness and rebel against his good purpose, good purposes. He loved us then, and his love for us then cost him everything. And that love, Christ's love for us, poured out in suffering is the anchor that we cling to when we want to, when we desperately want to seize vengeance for our pain. We've been called to love as Christ loved, with the same willingness to endure what it will cost us to do it. It's hard to illustrate what this might look like in your life. Maybe someone at work has disrupted your career path or damaged your reputation. Maybe someone in your family has failed to love you in the way that family should, or perhaps a complete stranger has lashed out at you. Maybe someone has carelessly hurt you or intentionally sought to cause you pain. This passage is not telling us to seek it or that we cannot run from it as David did, but it is telling us how we ought to respond to that abuse when we face it. 
And in the moment when your instinct is telling you to strike back, to inflict some pain of your own, I pray that God will remind you of Christ's love for you in that moment. And that you will remember that no matter how deeply, how severely, how hurtfully someone has sinned against us, that it pales in comparison to the magnitude of our sin against God, forgiven already in Christ. I'm sure that some of you have been following a story that's been in the news recently about a de- the death of a young man in Dallas and the conviction of his murderer. It is a tragic story about an off-duty police officer who came home only to accidentally walk into the wrong apartment. And she saw a man there that she thought was there to hurt her, and she shot and killed him. One year ago, she was arrested, and on Tuesday of this week, she was convicted of murder. And the next day, at her sentencing, the victim's brother was allowed to give a, a, a statement. And the whole country has been talking about what he said since. I want to share some of that with you. Because this guy, the victim's brother, just as David did, put his hope in God's faithfulness in the face of evil that he had received, that his family had felt. This victim impact statement gives us an example of what it looks like to look toward God and to cling to the anchor of Christ's faithfulness, even in the middle of the most intense sorrow this man will likely ever face. Looking directly at his brother's murderer, he said, If you are truly sorry, I can only speak for myself, I forgive you, and I know that if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And again, I'm only speaking for myself, but I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say that I hope you rot and die like my brother did, but I want the best for you. And I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone else, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what my brother would want too. And the best thing that you can do, that he would want for you to do, is to give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that he would want you to do. Again, I love you and as, as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. And then he asked the judge if he could give the woman who shot and killed his brother after walking into the wrong apartment a hug. We have been called to love as Christ loved. And that may seem an impossibly high bar when we are faced with the pain that we feel in a broken world. Because it demands everything that we have to love as Christ loved. But in Christ we receive more. The blessing that God gives to those who look to him for justice and restoration. Christ loved us, you and me, when we were his enemies. And knowing that, clinging to it, for all of our hope, we trust in his faithfulness to bless us even as we endure what this world will throw at us. And as we do, we become like him, praying Even as we receive evil and reviling and pain in this life, we pray, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. Will you pray with me? God, we know that your word 
is hard for us to hear sometimes because it calls us out of what we want. It calls us away from our comfort and our instinct and our nature. Uh, and God, as we hear these words from the book of 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning, to bless those who, who bring evil into our lives, who condemn and revile us. God, we know that that is contrary to everything that our hearts desire. And we pray that as, as our instinct would drive us toward responding to that pain by inflicting more pain, we pray that you would remind us in that moment of our sin against you, greater in magnitude than anything that we will feel, any pain that we will feel in this life. That You will remind us that that sin against you is already forgiven in Christ, that you have proven that this is not an impossibly high bar. You have shown us what it looks like to love our enemies because you loved us when we were your enemies. We are grateful for that reminder this morning, grateful for your word, and our response to you is only worship. It's in the name of your Son that we come before you with this praise and prayer and that we pray. Amen.